Next word, ready for it? Oh, 11 o'clock. How you break my heart. Okay, are you ready for the word? Here, there we go. It's just so much better if you do it the first time. All right, so, uh, well, maybe this is the reason. So the question I want to ask you as we get started today is, who, who feels tired today? Just raise your hand if you feel tired. Yeah, how many people are like so tired you couldn't even raise your hand for that question? That's, that's probably more to the point for a, a lot of you, I, I understand. And if you are tired, if you are tired, this message is for you. And I need you to muster all the energy you can to stay awake during the preaching of God's Word uh, this morning, because we're talking about the rest of God. And we're talking about rest in, in the context of this series, of course, we're talking about the means of grace or the conduits by which God communicates and sends His grace to us. And so today we're talking about rest as a means of grace, one of the ways that God shows His favor to us and His kindness to us, one of the ways He blesses us. And I'm sure you would be interested, especially if you're one of those who raised their hand or didn't raise their hand and you're tired, you're interested to know how we could attain to, how, how we could receive the rest of God. And so we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. If you're not already there in your Bibles, have those, uh, pa that passage open in front of you, Hebrews chapter 4. And Hebrews, of course, is a, I've, I've told you this before, Hebrews is a sermon. And if it were to be preached straight through or you to read it straight through, it takes about 50 minutes to get through it, which is a really, really good length for a sermon, 50 minutes, don't you think? Nervous laughter ripples through the crowd. Uh, but 50 minutes is one length for a sermon, and this one happens to be about 50 minutes long, this uh, book of Hebrews, this uh, sermon manuscript or transcript that we have. And in the midst of it, in Hebrews 4.11, he says this, and we'll read this in just a moment, but he, he, the preacher exhorts his, his listeners to strive to enter that rest, the rest that he's going to talk about here. And the word strive, when you see a word like that, the word strive indicates this is going to be a fight. This is going to be hard. It's not going to come easily for us. We're going to have to wrestle this down. We're going to have to be ruthless in our efforts to experience what God has designed us to experience. And not only that final rest, you know, RIP, rest in peace, not only that final rest in eternity, but now in eager anticipation of that day, we can experience that rest as well. God gives you and he gives to me rest as a means of his grace. And so the question in front of us, are you experiencing that uh, today? And so let's, let me read the passage. This is Hebrews 4, 1 to 13. I'll read this and then we'll get right into it. Hebrews uh, 4, 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, 
if you will hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All right, in your notes and up on the screen, uh, you'll see uh, this uh, overarching theme for our uh, message today. In this passage, God gives me rest as a means of his grace, and see this first, but I'll fail to experience it apart from Christ. I'm going to fail to experience the rest of God apart from Christ. And the rest that we're talking about here is not something, because I, I started with that initial question, it's not something that you're going to get from a really good afternoon nap or an extended two or three week vacation or even reaching age 65 and having uh, your retirement start. The rest that we're talking about here is first, the God-given eternal rest that cannot be experienced apart from you being in Christ. Now, when we start this passage in in chapter four, of course, we're in the middle of a paragraph. We're in the middle of an extended argument that the preacher has given that actually starts back in chapter three. He's in the middle of a thought and he says, therefore, and he's building off of what he's just written in the previous verses, He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The promise that he's talking about here is the promise of eternity, the promise that we could be with Jesus forever. And he uses Israel in in, in building this argument. He's using Israel and Moses and the promised land and, and, and the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt to the promised land. He's using all of that as the example to make his point. And he wanted his hearers to understand that this was not actually about, even though he was using that example, this is not actually about reaching the promised land, which in their minds, that was the thing that was going to get them their rest. If only we could get to the promised land. But this wasn't about the physical land, which was at best, at best, a small taste of what God really wanted to give to them. And in fact, some in Israel, even though they were along for the journey, some in Israel missed it. They missed out on the blessing of the rest that God was providing them. And the point of the preacher raising this and using this illustration is that some Christians now in the very same way are failing to reach what God intends for us. Not everyone reaches it. Not everyone enjoys it. Not everyone receives the grace that God is ready to pour out in all of our lives. And the solution he's saying is Christ. Look back to chapter, if you look back in chapter 3, which we didn't read, but if you look back to verse 14, there's so much we could say about, really from verse 7 on is is the beginning part of of what he's arguing here. He says in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm 
to the end. If we have that original confidence, if we're holding firm in that, and that original confidence that we're talking about here, which each of us should be asking, am I holding that original confidence firm right now? And am I holding it firm to the very end, to the end of my life? Am I persevering through it all? But that original confidence is your conversion. It's your belief in Jesus. It's the moment at which you exercised faith in him. Is your faith legit? That's the question that premises this whole idea of receiving his rest. Is your faith legit? Do you believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ? He's the one who labored, who worked, who gave his life, who completed his mission on the cross, was raised from the tomb. And as a result of that, if we have faith in that, this rest is available to us. Have you come, to use the language that he uses here in Hebrews 4, have you come to share in Christ? Do you have a legitimate faith? And if you do, then you're saved. Your sins are forgiven, your future is secured, and God's rest is yours. Now, in a very practical sense, God's rest is yours in in kind of this way. There's a lot of different ways we could talk about this, but one of the ways in which this rest is yours that we're actually practicing here this morning, and when we talk about a disciple here at Harvest, we define that in terms of four W's. And the very first of those, in order of priority, the very first of those is that a disciple of Christ worships Christ. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you worship Jesus. And when we talk about worshiping Jesus as a disciple, that has two components to it. The first is this, the fact that you become a worshiper, that you actually have an original um, confidence in Christ, that you have been converted, your sins have been forgiven, you expressed faith in Jesus. You have an original confidence. You've become a worshiper. And having done that as that one-time act of reaching out to Christ, you then live a lifestyle as a worshiper, 24-7 implications to being a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Again, to use the language of Hebrews 4, have I come to the place where I share in Christ? And then the outward expression of that is that a disciple will, secondly, here's the second component, attend gathered worship. One expression of it, but a very important one. So I want to become a worshiper, and then I want to attend gathered worship with others who share in Christ, just as we've done here today. And in fact, later on in this very same sermon, Hebrews 10, 23, 24, 25, he's talking about this very thing. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We need this for mutual encouragement. This is a means of God's grace in our lives. And that's important because, again, when we gather with respect to how this relates to rest, but when we gather together in this place for worship, it is a partial fulfillment of God's full intention for us. It's an opportunity for us to rest. It's a taste of eternity. I read a, a, a great book on the topic of rest um, several years ago uh, by Mark Buchanan. It's called The Rest of God. I would recommend it to you, and there's a link in the notes for the book. But here's what Buchanan said, at the heart of worship, at the heart of worship is rest. A stopping from all work, 
all worry, all scheming, all fleeing, to stand amazed and thankful before God and His work. There can be no real worship without true rest. The two are so interconnected with each other. And so to get together like this, to sing these songs that we've sung, to hear God's Word read, to hear the exposition of God's Word, to, to join in with the prayers that are said and to say our amen with those, even to just be together, to enjoy each other's company as the church. All of this is meant to be a rest and a reprieve from all that you've experienced in the six days prior to this day and to this hour. And the challenge is because this passage comes with a very severe warning for those who are not listening to what he's saying. If you cannot be engaged in this time, truly present, without checking text messages. Did I just get a text message? Without checking email, without looking at your socials for the 80 minutes that we happen to be here in the room, and you're missing out. If you can't do that, then you're missing out on the grace that God is pouring out on those who are truly present and not just physically present. And to those who are online right now, or watching the live stream, or watching this on demand during the week, if your reason for staying home and watching the live stream, and there are a lot of good reasons why you might be watching the live stream right now, don't want to despise any of those, and we're providing this ministry because we believe it's beneficial. But if your reason for staying home is so that you can multitask while the service is on, then you are going to miss out on the grace of God. You're going to miss out on this as a means of His grace, a conduit of all the kindness and goodness that He wants to do in your life. I mean, the gathering of God's people like this, the gathered worship of the church is a brief window of holy respite from the busyness and stretches uh, stresses of the other 167 hours of the week. So we have to guard this. We have to prioritize it. And why would we not make this a top priority, the top priority of our week to take full advantage of His means of grace? You and I won't experience all that God wants to do in our life unless we do. We won't experience it apart from Christ. And so listen, having said that, I must listen. See this next, I must listen and believe his promise. The preacher continues on with his theme here, verse 2. He says, for good news, talking about the gospel now, the gospel message of Christ, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. He's contrasting those who at any particular time in history either fall on one side or the other of the line of believing. Some believe and some do not believe. He's using the example going all the way back, you know, 1,500 years or 1,400 years to the time of the Exodus from the time he was preaching. He's talking about the Israelites. That there were some Jews who believed and some who didn't believe and some who enjoyed the rest and some who didn't enjoy the rest. He's preaching in a first century context to a church, a, probably a newer church filled with largely Jewish people who had converted to Christ. 
And now we're reading this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're reading this 2,000 years later. And we know that this has application for us. And we know that there are people who will hear the word to, of God today and we're going to believe it. And there's going to be people who hear the word of God today and are not going to believe it. There's always those who believe and those who do not believe. So he's contrasting these two groups at any time in history. And he says, verse 2 continues, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Some were listening, some were not. And he goes on to further describe that in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he lays a foundation for Sabbath rest. And he lays this foundation going all the way back to the creation, which means he's going all the way back past the time when sin entered the world. That is significant. And he says in verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken. This is how you can tell it's a sermon because he didn't precisely lay out where it was found. In the moment of preaching the sermon, he couldn't remember. But he just, so he just says, for he has somewhere spoken, and it's Genesis 2-2, by the way, of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. From the beginning, from before sin entered the world, before the fall of humanity, the rest of God was not necessitated by sin, but by God's creative design. He built this into who we are as human beings. God established a Sabbath rest for us and mandated that we should observe it. Now, this is not like an arbitrary religious rule that's intended to oppress us in some way. In fact, rest is God's provision for us, knowing that we have an inclination as human beings towards self-harm. And beyond that, he understood that every single one of us need focused fellowship with him in order to actually rest. The creator knows that we need to stop. We need to rest. We need to recharge and we need to do so as a regular pattern in our lives. And so he established this one in seven principle for us to follow. And by doing so, when we follow the pattern of a one in seven rest, a Sabbath, we are pointing prophetically to eternity and our final rest. We're saying, I'm resting now, but this is a picture of what it's going to be like then. But we're also recharging our batteries for life here and now. And as a side note, if this topic interests you, and I'm not going to go into all the issues about whether the Sabbath is Saturday or Sunday, and I don't believe it's either, by the way, um, it's a one in seven principle, but I have a message on this I preached a number of years ago from Luke chapter six, and the link for that is in the notes as well. So he's appealing and urging his hearers to come back to, and, 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 and uh, he's actually preaching through Psalm 95 right here, and he refers to David in that regard, but he's appealing to his hearers, coming back to Psalm 95, this principal passage, and he says in verse 5 of Hebrews 4, and again, this passage, he, he, uh, Psalm 95, this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. If you don't believe, you're never going to find this rest. You're never going to get it. And he says in verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, those who formerly received the good news, 
failed to enter. They heard the gospel, but they failed to enter because of disobedience. They didn't believe. He says in verse 7, again, he appoints a certain day, not Saturday as the Sabbath, not Sunday, as many Christians have declared this to be the new Sabbath despite the Scriptures. He appoints a certain day. What's the day? Look in the text. What's the day? It's today. It's today. Saying through David, Psalm 95, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is a call to repent, to admit that God is right, to admit the sin of unbelief, to admit our struggle to find something in this world that will satisfy us, to, that there's something that I could pursue, something as simple as a nap or a vacation or something big like retirement or some other way, some leisure activity, some relationship that I think will bring me rest, but won't. It's not there. The world doesn't have it. And instead to believe the ancient promise of God regarding rest and to turn to Jesus to find it, turn to him in faith alone. I have to listen. I have to believe this promise that he's given me with respect to rest. And I have to do so awaiting, notice this next, awaiting rest's ultimate fulfillment. I never like the passages that tell me to wait for anything. Because I'm, I'm not a person who waits. Not well. I'm not a patient person. I want things now. How many people are with me on this? You're not really a great waiter. Like you really want things now. And so it's always a struggle to come to something like this, but I have to listen to his promise. I have to await rest, ultimate fulfillment, because even when we place our faith in Jesus, life here on earth still remains a struggle. Am I right? Life here on earth, even though I'm a Christian, I've been, I've been a follower of Jesus for, for uh, more than 40 years. They've all been a struggle. I have to wait for the promise to be ultimately, finally, completely fulfilled. But the preacher goes back to his Old Testament illustration in verse 8, and he, he locks in on Joshua now. And Joshua, Moses died on the east side of the Jordan. He didn't go in over the Jordan River into the promised land. So Joshua was going to get the job of doing that. For if Joshua, who took the people of Israel into the land, had given them rest, if Joshua had been able to fulfill this by simply taking them in to the land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And God did. Again, it's not about the physical land that they were going into. And remember, this is the, what we call the book of Hebrews, which the, the name on it is, is it, it, it targets the people that the preacher was preaching to. This was, again, largely people of a Jewish heritage who knew the history that the preacher was talking about. And the preacher is saying that the promised land of Israel, the physical geography at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, that that isn't the big meal. And so many of the people, they had all their hearts set on this, on just the thing they could see and getting into the land. And this is the big meal. This is the banquet that God means to provide for us. When in fact, all it was was a small morsel. It was just like a little appetizer at best of the rest that God really wanted to give to them. 
And that's why he says next in verse nine, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's more to come. God was saying to the people in Joshua's time, look, you're getting into the land, but there's more to come. The preacher to the Hebrews is saying in the first century, you know, you have Christ and it's awesome and the forgiveness of your sins, there's more to come. And he's saying to us this morning, there's more to come. Verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest, whoever has a share in Christ, whoever is a follower of Jesus, whoever has found the forgiveness of their sins, exercising faith in him, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him. I'm no longer striving to earn God's favor. I'm just receiving his grace. If you're saved, you're going to live this out. You're going to live out willingly this principle of one in seven rest, among other things in the Christian life, but you're going to apply this one in seven principle in your life in eager anticipation of the eternal rest to come. In the language of of John's gospel, John 15, Jesus said, this is what it means to abide in me, to live in me, to exist in me, is to have this rest. And to apply it in every way you possibly can. And every time you do, you're saying, I believe the promise. You roll into the parking lot here on Sundays, I believe the promise. I'm coming to have my hour plus of rest here with the people of God in anticipation of the greater rest to come. I believe the promise. And it also means that we recognize that this world cannot provide us with what we so desperately want and need. Israel entered the land. As I said, they never found the rest that they were looking for. They crossed the Jordan River. They drove out some of the people. They occupied some of the cities and towns, but not all of them. Following uh, the period of the initial takeover of the land of Canaan, then we got into the period of the judges, and they were continually warring against this king and that king and that city and this town. Their own rebellion would lead to God punishing them, and then someone would come and preach the word, and, and they would repent, and the cycle would repeat. There's no rest in that. The period of the kings of King Saul and King David was decades and decades of fighting the Philistines who occupied the land with them. A brief, brief period of respite under King Solomon when Israel rose to the apex of its power and influence in the world. It was a period of peace, but soon after Solomon was gone, war, rebellion, revolt, civil war in Israel, the division of the kingdom north and south. And will remain that way with animosity between the two over a long period of time before finally the world power of the day, the Assyrians would roll in and take away the northern kingdom of Israel. And 200 years later, the Babylonians, the world power of their day, would roll in and take the southern kingdom into captivity. No peace there, no rest. The end of the exile, the Jewish people would return and rebuild their land, and even then, warlords and challenges faced them at every turn. Some measure of peace came, but then Alexander the Great rolled in. 
and then it was the Romans, and then Christ came. And 70 years later, the Romans would knock down the temple, effectively scattering the Jewish people around the world. Except for a brief period of time under Solomon. There was no rest for the Jewish people. And I I think about that and go, how tragic is that? And then I look at our own lives and I go, is that not a mirror to our own souls and our own lives? We struggle to find rest. Even as believers, we struggle to find rest. Little to no rest from the relentless demands of life. We battle sin. I'm sure I'm speaking for you when I say we battle sin and temptation daily. Is that just me or you too? We battle temptation and sin daily. We, we experience, did anybody here, don't raise your hand, experience relational conflict this week? I'm not going to have you raise your hand because it could be with the person beside you. I'm, and that would be awkward. But that's a fairly normal experience. How many people have faced financial pressures this week? We, 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 we can't pay both of the bills. We can't pay all of the bills. We don't know how we're going to make it next month. I'm not getting enough work. How can we reorder our budget? How many people are facing setbacks and trials of all kinds in their lives? How many people have watched a loved one pass away recently? How many people are just weary, unable to find rest because of the burden of grief? How many of us are thinking that our day is coming too? Where's the rest in the midst of all of that? Where's the rest that God promised? Well, it's coming either by our own death or the appearing of Christ, but it's coming. And as hard as it is for a person like me, I have to wait for it. God's timeline remains a mystery to each one of us, and our part is simply to believe the promise and then live our lives in light of that promise. Amen? But we do get those tastes. We get those appetizers that God gives us. We're awaiting rest's ultimate fulfillment, but see this uh, finally while striving, striving to enjoy that grace now. I mean, again, all the way through this, we've been hearing this twofold application or understanding of rest. This mandate that God has given to us to rest, the eternal fulfillment that's found in Christ and ultimately experienced in eternity and also a deposit on that now, the opportunity to experience these moments of true spiritual rest now. Again, this gathering of God's people being one example of that. And as we talked about earlier with respect to worship, here again, Buchanan says this, Sabbath is when we stop. Rest is when we stop. We slow down. It's going to look different for different people, depending on what your interests are and what the demands of your life are. But we play, we rest, we dream, we wonder. We cease from that which is necessary and turn to that which gives 
life. And in the hush that descends, we listen. We're listening for God. Hopefully what we're hearing in that moment of shutting other things down and pausing in his presence, Hopefully what we're hearing is the voice of God assuring us of what is to come and strengthening us to persevere until that day. And so he says, and this is a verse I quoted in the introduction, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. This is going to be a fight to carve out this time, to make it a priority in our lives And he says, these are the stakes. This is why it's so important. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's to say that when we fail to rest as God commands, it really says something about how seriously we're taking our obedience to God. And it's not great. I um, said to someone in a text message later in the week, after having two particularly frustrating experiences, conversations um, in, in the middle part of the week. And I was just reflecting on that and, um, and, and these two frustrating situations, conversations kind of came together. And I said, I'm tired of Christians forgetting what the Bible says when things get hard. I'm tired of Christians forgetting what the Bible says when things get hard. I mean, we, 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 we sit here this morning and we nod with agreement. I can see some of you going, mm, mm, mm. It's like you're eating a bowl of poutine right now. Like, mm, that's good, that's good. You're nodding, you're agreeing with the things that are being said here. Or, or in your own time with the Lord, you're getting God's word open and you're reading through it and you have your pen in your hand and you're underlining certain verses. And when you're underlining them, what are you saying? Well, I really agree with that. That's awesome. I love what God is saying to me in this moment, in this verse. We make these notes and we give this assent to the things that we're hearing. But then God ordains God allows something to happen to our life that's, that's difficult, that tests our belief system, that tests the very things we've read in his word. And we cry foul. God, how could you? And it's like we forget everything we just heard. All the nods in church, all the things we've underlined in our Bible. It's like we forget all of it. Because God has ordained something hard for us to go through. Now listen, we have to take God at his word. We have to believe what he said to us and we have to take him seriously. And we have to take him seriously when things are going well for us, which is super easy to do. God's so awesome to me right now. I'm just so blessed. We have to take God at his word when it's not. We have to take him seriously when it isn't going our way. 
And so the preacher, he's just come through this lengthy discussion about how we achieve the rest of God. And then he puts this verse in verse 12, which is one of my favorite verses in the Bible and is underlined and highlighted. Double dose. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. In other words, you're not getting away with anything. God sees it all. He knows it all. His word discerns it all. God knows what's going on in your heart right now. He knows whether you're loving every word that I'm preaching or despising it. He knows. I don't know. He knows. And the fact that God knows your heart right now, if you're in Christ and you're seeking to live for him, if you're abiding in him, if you're resting in him, that should be one of the most comforting things you could possibly say to a person. God knows your heart. But if you're not resting in him and you're not abiding in him and you're not obeying him, it's terrifying, isn't it? So you should be in this moment. You should be either very blessed by the fact, very comforted by the fact that he knows your heart, or you should be terrified. There's no middle ground on this. It should be one or the other. For sure what it means is that none of us can be complacent with God's word. We have to take this seriously. There's no place to hide. And that's what he says in verse 13. No creature, you're a creature, I'm a creature, creator. Every created person, every human being is no created creature. No creature is hidden from his sight. And then hearkening back to the creation, Adam and Eve in the garden, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must to give account. And he says all of this in the context of the rest of God. Now, very practically, just going to bring this message in for a landing, but I want to be really practical here. Because so this is hard for us. We're striving to enter that rest, but everything in the world wars against us doing it. Even our own hearts. And for those of us who have been around for a few more decades than others, and I'm talking about those who will remember, the, uh, remember life before the cell phone. How many, how many people here can remember life before the cell phone? Just raise your hand. Some of you are too old to raise your hand, I understand. Those who remember life before the cell phones, I, I remember that life... Uh, life back then still had its stresses. I can remember some of those. Um, but, but when you got, here's what I remember, that when you got in your car to go somewhere, in the pre-cell phone days, it was, it was like a mini retreat from everything else. Like you were just out of touch from every. No, it, it was a refuge from everything. Because no one could call you. There was no cell phone. You were just, it was just you in your car. No one, in fact, no one knew who, where you were. There was no like Life 360 where you can track your entire family and know they're on Maple View uh, Drive East near Heronia. You don't know that. You don't know where a person is. They're just out there. They just went for a drive. 
They're just on their way. No one knew where, there was no such thing as email. So it couldn't follow you in your car. There was mail. It was on paper. And a person brought it to your house. That's the only kind of mail that existed. They didn't bring it to your car. There was no texting, no immediate communication with all these people who want your attention. There was no social media to invade your space. No having to, oh, I need to update my status so people know how awesome I am. And I want to read and see how lame my life is next to the awesomeness of other people's lives. That's an official definition of social media, by the way. It was you in your car and you would turn on your AM station and you would listen to top 40 hits and that was all there was. It was just you in your car in the top 40. And in a way, though we didn't think about it at the time, in a way that was rest. I mean, compared to how we live our lives now, that was a moment of respite and rest and retreat. And I say all that to say that we are all but unable to escape the flood of information that comes at us now and it makes it almost impossible to rest. That flood of information all on its own is exhausting in addition to all the other stresses that come at us in a given week that are not cell phone related. I'm speaking to those who overwork. I'm speaking to parents who overload their kids' calendar with activities and sports and such. I'm speaking to the attitude that is so pervasive in our society that says that we're somehow being lazy when we stop. When God has commanded us to stop one in seven. I'm speaking to those who, who when they're at home in the quietness of their home just can't have it that way and have to have the television on. Why? Have to always be reading the news. I take in very little news. I take in what I have to. But this week, again, I don't know if I was having a particularly aggravated week. I don't know what it was. I read three stories in the National Post and came away feeling so aggravated. And I texted my friend Peter and I told him, I said, I'm so aggravated. I read three news stories. It's this flood of information that's overwhelming us on top of the regular pressures of life. And you're not being lazy if you stop. You're obeying God. We have to press pause. Because I sit here wondering how much of our mental and emotional stressors are the result of not understanding and not obeying God and resting. We have to let God use rest as a means of grace that flows into our lives. Otherwise, we'll miss what He wants to do in us. And we're going to miss it because God is looking at us very holistically. He's not just concerned with your spirits. God wants us to rest physically. He wants us to rest emotionally. He wants us to rest mentally. And yes, He wants us to rest spiritually. And He wants all of that to happen in Christ. And as we do, he'll pour out his grace in our lives. 